Welcome to Freedom Matters Today. This is Michael J. Sutton, and it is November the 27th, 2023. Today we're continuing our series on the identity of Jesus as part of our theme, Freedom from Past and Prejudice. Today's question is, should Christians go to church? Freedom Matters Today looks at freedom from a Christian perspective. What is the theme of freedom from past and prejudice? Well, freedom from the past are those things that define us and bind us, which prevent us from knowing God and ourselves. For Jesus, the past both defined and bound him in life and death. Freedom from prejudice is the way we see ourselves and others based on the things that divide us. For Jesus, prejudice was a stumbling block for those close to him, and it was all nonsense to those who were not. It is Jesus, the Son of God, the message of God who enables us to see our past and confront our prejudice so we might live in complete freedom. So far, we have seen that the Son of God is the message of God. The final word of God to those whose ancestors heard God speak in many and various ways through the prophets. We have also discovered that this Son, Jesus of Nazareth, is both the heir to all things and the one through whom God created the world. So, does God want Christians to go to church? In the West, where probably most of you live, We live in the century of churchism. This is the belief that you must go to church on Sunday and you must bring your friends to church so they can hear the good news of God preached. And when they're saved, the church will help them grow. You do not have the authority yourselves, nor do you have the right to tell your friends about God. Only the pastor, the priest or the minister can. That's why he or she is employed. And the only place they're allowed to hear about God is in church on Sunday. The unchurched are those people who do not go to church. I was taught this doctrine from high school onwards. It is a kind of neo-clericalism, clerical meaning of the cloth or those who are ordained ministers, pastors and priests. But it is a doctrine that began in the the 1980s, at a time when the old cultural Christianity in the West was really beginning to die out. It seems to me that the central doctrine of the church today is not the resurrection or anything concerning Jesus Christ. The central doctrine of the church today is that if you do not go to church, then you are not a true Christian. If you do not step into a brick-and-mortar building, sit down, listen to the sermon and sing the songs, maybe partake of the Mass, pay your dues, then you do not follow Jesus. But if you do all of these things on Sunday, you are a Christian. And this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone, according to churchism, someone who goes to church on Sunday. 
there are two firewalls to this ideology. The first firewall of the ideology is that it doesn't matter which church you attend on Sunday as long as you go. That is the facade. The second firewall, of course, is that it absolutely matters what church you attend, and if you are unfortunate to meet someone from another church, then you are in big trouble. Most Christians will assert you must go to church to be a Christian, and then you ask them, well, which church? They will say it doesn't matter, but then if you go to the wrong church, you're in a lot of trouble. The contradiction is at the heart of the problem because Christians today have elevated church attendance to be a more significant doctrine than the belief in the person of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it doesn't matter to most Christians today if you deny the resurrection. As long as you go to church on Sunday, then God accepts you as one of his children. COVID hysteria, however, taught us something completely different. And this is what churches don't want us to remember. And that was that we do not need to go to a church at all. For the first time in our nation's history, a government decree was more important than Christ's plea that his disciples spread the gospel to all nations. Church leaders in Australia were gutless, spineless and cowardly and their behavior was a complete disgrace every minister every pastor every priest who shut down their church who went online who bowed to the state apostatized against god past generations would have been appalled at the moral degeneracy of their church, and instead of avoiding even the hint of evil, churches lined up in Australia with cap in hand, begging for a quid pro quo. If we shut down and shut up, what do we get? Well, in Australia, churches could dip into the $500 billion slush fund handouts, and many churches made a complete fortune. Demanding religious freedom when the victims of child abuse came knocking for compensation, churches had no trouble changing the employment status of their clergy from self-employed to employee just to receive the JobKeeper slush fund handout. Religious freedom was thrown out of the window. All churches in Australia closed, well the vast majority of them closed their doors, and their congregations were told that they do not need to physically attend church. They could do so online, voluntarily, which many of them did. But if this is true, then why return to church at all? If one can attend church online, voluntarily, maybe look at the video at your leisure during the week, then the physical meeting is irrelevant and out of date. I've spoken about COVID theology before, and if you'd like to read more about this perverse theology invented by Australian Christians, then go to my Brownstone piece at brownstone.org. The only reason African-American Christians and non-Christians have equality in America is because of what we know as the civil rights movement. This was the opposition 
to the unjust, unjust Jim Crow laws of segregation. Christians and non-Christians banded together, protested, engaged in civil obedience against unjust laws and overcame. The only reason there is Catholic freedom in Australia is because of the work of priests like Father Flynn, who secretly ran his parish in Sydney, under the noses of the authorities, completely illegally, even gaining support from prominent Church of England fanatics like the Reverend Samuel Marsden. Eventually, the father was deported. But his example and his testimony helped to raise awareness of the need for Catholic toleration in the colonies. The only reason the underground church in China flourished was because missionaries broke the law and took the gospel into the depths of communist China. What do the churches do during COVID hysteria? They did what they were told. They shut down. They took the money and they shut up. So much for faithfulness. Obedience to the Great Commission is more important than obedience to the laws of the state. Even in a so-called pandemic, which itself was a clear grab for power and the unsettling of rights and freedoms. In all the anti-lockdown movements, the Anglican Church of Australia, the Catholic Church of Australia and other traditional churches were all silent. They were too busy laughing all the way to the bank, too busy expelling and firing priests who did not get vaccinated, and it seems were too busy because they were possibly negotiating behind the scenes what they might receive at the end of the pandemic. They made their final decision during the pandemic. They want the money, the power, the schools, the hospitals, aged care and retirement homes are carving out of the economy and they want to change the law to force people to become the kind of moral people they have no intention of being themselves. But you see, post-COVID, the church in the West is in deep trouble. Most of these churches are heading to bankruptcy and the courts. If they can act with injustice and deprive the victims of child abuse some financial compensation, they will incur the wrath of God. Because God is on the side of the orphan and the widow and the powerless and the vulnerable. And when churches go against these groups, they will incur the wrath of God which the Bible teaches is something someone doesn't get up from. The financial payment to victims of child abuse cannot remove the pain of child abuse, but it is part of the path to justice. Trying to negotiate lower payments, bullying victims, or using the legal system loopholes to delay or prevent payment is evidence that the mainstream churches in Australia are not even remotely Christian anymore. In order to act as the social service provider in social welfare and other services, it is also increasingly difficult for the church to impose membership requirements on all the employees, thus greatly diluting their spiritual enterprise of conformity. The collapse in membership reflects the fact that churches are no longer with a monopoly over the hearts and minds of ordinary people. There are many other groups who cater for the social and psychological role churches played in the past. There are so many retirement clubs and social clubs and practical charities 
for people to join and receive the support that churches used to provide. Instead of ministers, pastors and priests, each with their sectarian, bigoted agendas, most people prefer genuinely trained professionals, such as psychologists, to help them with their many problems. And there are many different types of therapists these days. The internet has also been playing a significant role in shaping opinion and thought. Thus, the relevance and utility of the church is greatly diminished. Churchism, therefore, is the last hurrah of Christendom. It's all they've got left. It is the last battle. It's not a debate over theology, but a debate over membership, or rather, attendance. The war for the bricks and mortar churches, and all they represent is the last line of defence for a thousand years of church. Churchism has replaced the old contest between national churches and nonconformists. National churches in Australia, of course, the Anglican Church was a was a our quasi a national church. Nonconformists, those who did not conform to the Church of England, Baptist, Congregational, Presbyterian, and so on. So the old contest was between national churches and nonconformists, and this itself replaced the even earlier contest between national religion and almost certain death in the West. In other words, before the time of toleration, there was of course the time of intoleration, when anyone who did not submit to the national church was murdered by the church and their proxies in the state. But all three models, churchism, the contest between national churches and nonconformists and the contest between national religion and death in the West, believed that there was no salvation outside of the church, a building or a set of buildings, a belief shaped by an affirmation of apostolic succession, detailed creeds which define membership and exclusion. This is all fine. You can believe what you want to believe, but which church? You know, the funny thing is that those who tell you you must go to church on Sunday can never agree which church you're allowed to go to. Evangelical Anglicans in Sydney teach that they are the only ones with the truth and liberal Christians are all going to hell. Roman Catholics insist that God only approves of Roman Catholics. But in some places there is a kind of mutual recognition of baptism across that divide, so at least there's some progress. Even at the height of ecumenicalism, however, Rome refuses to entertain the possibility of a mass where non-Catholics can attend and participate. If your Roman Catholic priests tell you, tells you that a non-Catholic person can go to heaven, he's lying to your face. Sorry. Rome insists on conversion to the Roman Catholic Church as a prerequisite to eternal life. On the other side, the smaller the denomination, the worse it gets. You have the Baptists, then you have the Reformed Baptists, then you have the post-Reformed Baptists, then you have the Evangelical Reformed Baptists, and the First Baptists, and the Second Baptists, the Presbyterian Churches, the Reformed Presbyterians, the all the other Presbyterians, the Brethren, the Closed Brethren, the Open Brethren. The smaller the denomination, the worse it gets, the more rules there are and the angrier people become. In Western Europe in the past, there were only national churches and the victims of national churches. 
National churches were all about political disputes over faith, pogroms, persecutions, and exclusions ensured compliance, obedience, and submission. Those who did not obey were killed. Christians were killed throughout Western church history because churches murdered their way through that history. But why are there fewer Christians today? Is it a lack of faith or materialism or gaze? Are they to blame? Or is it feminism? Women to blame, are they? These allegations are very common, but they're spurious. In other words, they're fake. The reality is that the scam of the centuries is coming to an end. The merging, blending, mixing of church and state, the great fraud of faith that artificially inflated Christian piety is falling away. Now that these national clothes of faith have been removed, the genuine faith of people is being revealed. And the simple fact is that there are very few real Christians in the West because there always were. There were never many Christians in the West. And this is exactly what Jesus says. But the churches are terrified by this prospect. For the faithful Christian, it doesn't really matter how many people gather on Sunday. Where two or three gather at any time during the week, in any context, they're happy, they're content because they know they're following Jesus. But church people love numbers. They love bums on seats because the more bums on seats means more money coming in. Churches today are beside themselves with fear. Without the church, what will happen to their power and their properties? Without the church, what will happen to their money? Without the church, what happens to their faith, if they have any to begin with? This helps to explain the fanaticism of churchism today in the West, the view that you must go to church, and those who do not are not Christians. This blind submission to the church is the result of what we call indoctrination. It is an indoctrination more pernicious than COVID hysteria. It is brainwashing, pure and simple. It is one of the most effective forms of manipulation. I am truly astounded that anyone would want to return to church after three years of lockdown madness in this country. The church claims that it's God bringing back the faithful, but God doesn't go to church. Why would he? He's not welcome there, nor is his son, Jesus Christ. A large part of this churchism in Australia is also pure, good old fascism, fashioned racism. The Western church is one of the great relics of the old days, when the days when white people were in charge, a reminder of the British Empire, a reminder of a world where domestic violence, sexual deviance, gays, and other things were simply swept under the carpet. And a lot of people from that older generation and the middle-aged generation, they want the good old days back again. One guy who bought one of my books recounted the story. He was holding the book fresh from its Amazon packaging near his car, and a lady from his church came up to him excited when she saw the title Following Jesus in bold lettering. But she recoiled in horror 
when she read the full title. Following Jesus, when the church has lost its way. In her view, the church never loses its way. The church is always right, and you can never criticize the church. How dare you, she said. This is a book you're not allowed to read. What a bigoted fool. What a blind fool. What an ignorant fool. Anyone who looks at the history of the church in this country with such a naive and ignorant view deserves condemnation. The history of the church in this country has been a complete disgrace. Its treatment of indigenous people, its treatment of homosexuals, its treatment of other people from other religion, other religions, its treatment of money, its treatment of a whole range of issues, its lack of faithfulness and love. The church has been a complete disgrace. And anyone who talks about the church in such glowing terms that it is a wonderful place, it is a perfect place, and no criticism is tolerated, simply confirms my point that those people are just pure and simple fascists. Another guy brought freedom from fascism, and his criticism wasn't my argument, but simply because I dared to criticize the Australian church. But this guy didn't disclose the fact that he earns a living from the church, which means that his view was partisan, as I was criticizing his means of employment. The strange thing is, and this is the rub, isn't it? The church argues that people must be free to express their religious views. That people must be free to hold to their opinions. That people must be free to be Christians. This is really strange because there is no one more intolerant of other opinions than the church. The church in the West wrote the book on bigotry. They have the patent on sectarian intolerance and violence, and they hold the rights to religious persecution. Churches, in reality, hate each other. They can't stand each other. And they hate many in their own midst as well, because it is hatred, not love, which defines churches. For example, the Baptists recycle their pastors faster than they do plastic bottles. While the traditional churches love their secret church courts, where they pretend that church law is as valid as the law of the land. The way the modern churches behave is a disgrace. I've written about this in Freedom from Fascism, which is probably why the guy got upset. He read my criticisms and thought I was criticizing him directly. He should have read the book to the end because perhaps God was speaking to his heart. Perhaps it was the first time he heard the voice of God because he certainly wouldn't hear it at church. This episode reminded me of a story about Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist minister in the 19th century, who was giving a sermon in England, in London, on something. And he was simply applying the text of the scriptures to various categories of people, which was a common technique in preaching in those days. You take a Bible verse, and then you think about the different categories of people in your congregation, most of whom you've never met, in those days, so he would talk about the unconverted, the converted, the married, the unmarried. He'd just work his way through the categories. And after the service, a man confronted him and demanded to know how the minister knew all the personal details of his life and his current problems. Spurgeon admitted that he'd never met the man, but he realized that through his words, God was speaking to his heart. 
Churches are usually places where people are reminded every week for years of things they already know. This is also a mental illness. People need something new. They need to know more than repeated phrases and words. Their hearts need to be touched by God. And if that isn't happening, it means that God is no longer speaking. And if it means he's no longer speaking, it means that God's word is not being applied. The Bible is like a reservoir, a flowing waterfall, a rich resource, a mine of wonders. But you wouldn't know it if you went to most churches. I knew a man who went to the Anglican Church of Australia for 90 years. And he told me that I was the first person who told him that the Bible teaches he is loved by God. It's not surprising we live in a time of great spiritual illiteracy even among the clergy. The great tragedy of COVID hysteria is watching congregations return to the church, churches that betrayed them, that stole from them, that departed from them. Two arguments are being presented. The first one is saying, well, that's the past, friend. It's time to move on, time to forgive. Okay, Christian friend, then forgive everything else as well. But they won't, will they? They've got a long list of people they won't forgive, and don't worry, in the coming weeks, months and years, you'll know who they are. The second argument is to lie about COVID and argue that the last three years didn't even happen. Recently, I went to a conference and met two kinds of faiths. The first group of people were confident, personal and ambitious. They were working out their faith and life in tandem, questioning, doubtful, faithful. I could not tell if they attended a church or not because their faith in God shone brightly. The second kind were cowering, submissive and obedient. And they stood away from me. They would not even talk with me. And some apologized to me because in their view, I was not a real Christian because I do not go to church on Sunday mornings. Well, they didn't go to church for three years. So for that, those three years, did they cease to be Christians? Good question. My books on Christ, on faith and life were all books they were not allowed to read. They were not allowed to even peruse the books. For this group, my faith was irrelevant. All that mattered was that I needed to go to church. I could deny the entire Christian faith, but if I said the magic words, I go to church on Sunday, then I would meet with their approval and they would look at my books. What a disgrace, friends. What a complete disgrace. What we are witnessing today is the triumph of nominalism and the effective eclipse of Christian witness. The churches, instead of following Jesus, are putting their efforts into fighting for a Christian culture, which they will lose. Instead of following Jesus, Christians are making their last stand on Christian culture, which is like building a paper fence in a flood. What does any of this have to do with freedom from past and prejudice? What does any of this have to do with the identity of Jesus? Well, much in every way. Churchism has no place for Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? When people say, do you go to church on Sunday? Or which church do you go? I don't go to church. Oh, you're not a Christian. Oh, okay. So what about Jesus? Well, Jesus isn't important. 
Churchism has no place for Jesus. Their defense of the faith is based on their belief that church attendance is the most important thing Christians should do. It is the defining characteristic. The Bible, however, completely disagrees. The most important thing is to know God and his son, Jesus Christ. And most people who go to church have never met God. They have no idea who he is. No other priority even competes. The point of the Bible is to introduce people to God and his son, Jesus Christ. The letter to the Hebrews also says nothing about church. It's one of the reasons I like it. The whole point of the letter to the Hebrews is about the identity of Jesus Christ. The letter to the Hebrews says nothing about church. It's completely silent about Sunday worship. It says absolutely nothing. Imagine that. The issue on which Christians will fight and die on today is not even mentioned in this letter. The focus instead is Jesus Christ, his identity, who he is. I say don't go to church, follow Jesus instead, and go wherever he leads. Christians need to do the same. They need to stop talking about the church, defending the church, protecting the church, propping up the church, financing the church, loving the church. They need to turn back to God. They need to love the Son and walk in the Spirit. For this is the beginning, the middle, and the end of faith. Hebrews 1, 1-5 reads, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. We will look at each aspect of the identity of Jesus in turn and I will show why these things matter and how this identity of the Son challenges, undermines and subverts the established order both secular and religious. God doesn't want Christians to go to church. God wants Christians to know the identity of the Son, His Son the only Son of God. If you know the Son, you have life, real life and real freedom. So stop going back to prison and putting on the chains of weekly rituals again, of enslaving yourselves with your man-made rules, creeds, regulations and ways of thinking. If you know the Son, then you have life and you are truly free. So live as free people. Remember, freedom matters today because you matter to God. I'll talk to you next week.